Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <laughs> Notice where your thoughts are right now. <clears throat> I was with um, two good friends from England um, who just arrived uh, last night for the teachers' conference that is coming up. And um, they teach at, uh, at Gaia House, a really great um, meditation center in, uh, in Devon, England. And we were uh, talking about how um, how much the ideas we have, how we hold practice and uh, ourselves and and life uh, influence um, our behavior, our approach to things, and our behavior. And I, uh, we, it was a very rich conversation. So, you know, you ever have these uh, conversations, these Dharma conversations that we were talking for like, you know, two, two and a half hours or so. And it was just very rich and alive and um, juicy <clears throat> about all the different ideas that at, diff- at various times we've had about practice, about um, about life, about what freedom is, and as they've changed the um, the way it's influenced uh, how we we hold things and our the behavior that comes out of us, <clears throat> and the uh, we're thinking about the opening lines of the the Dhammapada, which is this uh, collection of um, verses and teachings of the Buddha, uh, famous collection, Um, then the opening lines say, uh, we are what we think. With our thoughts, we make the world. It goes on to say, speak or act with a confused mind and trouble will follow you uh, as uh, the cart follows the ox. Uh, speak or act with a pure or clear mind, and happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. <clears throat> Nobody uh, can, um, can harm us as much as our thoughts untrained, unguarded, uh, but nobody can help us as much as our noble or skillful thoughts, uh, not even our father or mother. With our thoughts, we are what we think. With our thoughts, we make the world. Another common translation of that is, um, mind is the forerunner of all things. And out of the stories out of the mythos, out of the the way we hold things, comes the ethos, comes our our behavior. And uh, there were a, a number of, as I said, a number of different um, explorations that we we got into in in our own practice that I wanted to share a little bit and have have us all look at what we think and how we hold things. Um, one that was a, a real turning point for me a number of years ago when uh, I visited this teacher that I've spoken about from time to time, uh, this uh, wonderful Advaita teacher uh, named uh, Punjaji, H.W.L. Punja, who lived in uh, Lucknow, India. And at that Point. This was in 1990 when I, I visited him. And I had been going through my own um, sorting out inner 
um, conflict or confusion or dissonance uh, in that um, I was getting very um, serious about practice. I've mentioned this before. This is kind of the the birthing of the Awakening Joy course and book. I had gotten very serious about practice and um, I had lost my joy for for some time. I didn't realize it, but I was sensing it. It wasn't so conscious, but I was kind of feeling it from the inside because um, I was taking to heart some teachings and perhaps I think misunderstanding them, um, teachings. I, I sat with this very powerful Burmese master who would end uh, each talk on a three-month retreat with saying, may you, may, you, may you speedily attain Nibbana and escape from the woes of this world. Uh, Every every night, and he was saying it with tremendous compassion. But basically, I was hearing, "Let's get out of here. This is uh, this place is a drag, and let's get out as as fast as we can." And that I I kind of distorted that, plus a few other teachings to kind of see uh, have the idea that it's it's not there's something not okay about loving life and uh, appreciating and and feeling all the, the blessings of life and trying to sort that out with, with a, 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 a deeply held attitude that was, that was within me of uh, just loving life and, and just celebrating the goodness in life. Um, so I was kind of going through this period for some time of it being kind of um, heavy. And I went to study with uh, Punjaji, who is not a Buddhist teacher. He's, he was a, in the Ramana Maharshi uh, lineage. Ramana Maharshi was this great saint. You probably have seen his beatific face uh, expression, very famous picture just shining out at you. And uh, Punjaji um, had a very profound realization with uh, Ramana Maharshi in uh, 1947 or so, and was this embodiment of aliveness and love and freedom. And I asked him many questions. Uh, I was fortunate to get there before an explosion of interest happened uh, and then there were the last few years of his life there were hundreds and hundreds of people uh, each day but when I went um, there were just a handful of people and I had lots of questions for him and because uh, uh, he said things that were very different from my understanding of practice like you know meditation uh, just uh, wears out the mind until it gives up and then and you're already free, and you don't know it, and things like that. Um, and I had a very powerful experience with him. But at the very end of my time there, I asked him, each time I'd, I'd ask him questions, and I'd be a little bit shy about asking more and more questions, because you know, once, once my mind starts going, it's, I want to know about this, and I want about that. And he was so good, he said, you know, Give me all your questions. Any more questions? Any more questions? And at the very end, I said, well, yeah, I do. I have one more question, uh, Punjaji. He said, give me your question. And I said, you know, you, um, you talk about emptiness a lot. He would talk, emptiness, it was like his favorite word. And, but when he talked about emptiness... Um, and there, there would be, you know, he'd be so animated and it was like bathing in the sea of love. And, and I said, you know, Buddhists talk about emptiness and um, it seems very serious and solemn, the profound understanding of emptiness. When you talk about emptiness, 
you're laughing, you're crying, you're loving, you're radiant, and it's just, it's a whole different feeling. And I want to know, why is your emptiness so much more fun than, (laughs) than Buddhists? And uh, he said, uh, well, this is an important question. And he said, many times if you have touched the, the depth of understanding around, around emptiness when you've been in silence, in sitting, in stillness, on a meditation cushion, and that that is the 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 glorified um, way to open to profound understanding, um, there can be a, a, a distortion in thinking that emptiness is comes out of stillness and that anything other than that stillness or silence is somewhat antithetical to the profound um, opening and understanding and activity and playfulness and and other things like that that they're um, they're other than a way to connect with emptiness and he said um, my emptiness my emptiness rejects nothing there is nothing that's rejected in my emptiness and there's there's uh, joy and there's sorrow and there's love and there's confusion and there's restlessness and there's peace. Nothing is rejected from my emptiness. And then he started bursting out laughing. <laughs> and in that moment, I realized that I had lost that deep understanding that I had always carried for earlier years in my practice where, as it said sometimes in the teaching, samsara and nirvana are one. That it's not this dualistic, uh, well, that's where uh, the peace is and samsara and, uh, is, is other than, than, than freedom. And it brought me back to reconnecting with my aliveness. Uh, it was a very uh, powerful moment and turning point as I started to reframe the way I understood practice to be. And, and what it did actually was make me then go back to the teachings and I wanted to discover just what the Buddha did say about happiness and joy. And, you know, that, that's, that's been something that I uh, have been focusing on in the last number of years. Just from that little turn of perspective. A few other Dharma concepts that are easily mm, taken one way or another, and and makes makes a difference how you hold them. One is the uh, the understanding. If you read some of the traditional teachings of the Buddha, that parinibbana, the very the last birth where somebody becomes fully enlightened, like the Buddha, that you are no longer returning to, um, uh, to have another rebirth, that you are out of the, the cycle of samsara. And you know, as, as the, it's described in the Theravadan tradition, parinibbana, the final nibbana, there is the end of the cycle of samsara. You're no longer... Uh, around. And it can be a very great motivator if you are seeing that samsara, this wheel of 
birth and death, the cycle of 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 life and death, is uh, something to get off the wheel. It can also be a little confusing. We say, well, gosh, um, is the point to get out of here? I, I won't get into that right now. But another alternative is the bodhisattva ideal. That's very um, uh, inspiring in the Mahayana or uh, Vajrayana traditions where when one truly awakens full enlightenment, then you keep coming back for the benefit of others. That you don't leave the, uh, this realm and you, out of compassion, you're motivated to keep coming back. Both are very inspiring models for awakening, but um, it can be a little confusing. You know, who's right and, you know, who, who's, uh, what's the point of this? Is it to get out and be completely free or is it to, to keep coming back and you are going to, um, you're going to keep on supporting others? Uh, in fact, the, the book One Dharma, written by Joseph Goldstein, um, was, was written by trying to put together those different viewpoints and seeing, okay, because uh, he, couldn't, he, he couldn't make, he couldn't figure out what was the real Dharma. And uh, he finally came up with the, the answer, who knows, uh, which helped him put down the uh, the question and just see each one as skillful means. Even the, the bodhisattva concept, the different beliefs of the bodhisattva ideal, depending upon um, how you approach it, can have a very different effect on what motivates you to practice, how you practice. Uh, a while ago, we, we went through um, the... Um, Shanti Deva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life and uh, gave a series of talks on it, um, basically um, using Pema Chodron's book, No Time to Lose, as the, the basis for it. But I wanted to share with you um, three different approaches to the Bodhisattva ideal of, uh, of awakening for the sake of others. This is one approach. The attitude... Our commitment can be made with the attitude of a king or a queen. That's the first approach. Where we work on ourselves first. Although our specific intention is to benefit others, we know this is only possible if we ourselves wake up. Anyone who works in the helping professions knows how easy it is to lose one's patience or feel aversion. So it becomes obvious we can't benefit others until we put our own kingdom in good working order. So that's the first one. Okay, I will become fully enlightened and then I can help others. A very noble motivation for practice. Then there's a second approach called, um, I'll just do it in a different order, the shepherd approach, which... um, represents what some think of as real compassion. Just as shepherds put the welfare of their sheep before their own, we aspire to put others before ourselves. That is, postponing our own enlightenment until everybody else is enlightened. You know, the uh, sentient beings are numberless. I, value, I, I, vow, vow, I uh, vow to, to save them all. And I will postpone my own enlightenment and just let everybody come before me. Also, a very inspiring and noble and generous and compassionate approach. And it definitely will color the possibilities that you uh, see for yourself in completely waking up. I'm not saying... And she's not saying one is the right one or not right one. Then there's the third approach called the ferryman approach. 
Here we find ourselves in the same boat with all sentient beings crossing the water together. The analogy has a sense of just like me. Like me, all beings experience themselves as the central character in life's drama. Like me, they're enslaved by attachments and aversions, hopes and fears. Um, With this, we all want to feel safe and free from fear. With this basis as the uh, this is the basis of our bodhisattva training. We reach out beyond our self-centered version of reality and bring others into our lives. And we're doing it along with everybody else. So we are working on our own freedom, purifying our mind and helping others in any way we can within our capacity along the way. All valid bodhisattva vows or approaches, but which one touches you has a very different quality to the the way the mind holds trajectory of practice. I I personally am inspired by that last one. Uh, I don't want to wait until I am fully enlightened to be of help or value and, and share what little uh, I might know for others. And I don't want to um, uh, postpone my awakening so that everybody can go before me. I don't know how that works. All I know is if I purify myself as best I can, I can be of better help to, to others as well as inspire me to keep on my own awakening. But how you hold it is a very... uh, um, affects our inspiration for practice. And each of them can be inspiring in their own way. Mm. The story of who we are and what our... Um, our essential makeup uh, is can um, be tremendously influenced by the cultural psyche. So I, I've often thought of the difference between being raised in a Judeo-Christian culture that has the essence of the human. Uh, the human experience being that we were in the Garden of Eden, uh, committed some terrible sin, eating an apple, having knowledge, and being kicked out of the Garden of Paradise. And if we are good enough, if we repent enough, if we purify ourselves enough, then hopefully we can be accepted back and um, welcomed into uh, paradise again. It's a very powerful effect on the psyche, this whole notion of original sin. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying... Just take a look on the how that effect is. Even if you you don't particularly ascribe to it, it's so much in the culture, embedded in our psyches, that it has its own effect. And for me, personally, when I first heard um, Hindu teachings of the Atman is inside of you, or Buddhist teachings where you are the Buddha and taking refuge in the Buddha or seeing your true nature, your Buddha nature, this purity of mind and heart that is just obscured by confusion, not seeing clearly. That had a whole different um, inspiring paradigm for me. Oh, you mean I'm not impure and somehow uh, have to kind of work hard to 
to clean up my act. Oh, I can clean up my act by seeing all the confusion and then noticing or getting in touch with the obscurations or with what's underneath the obscurations. Ah, that was very inspiring for me. Just that story of how we hold ourselves in relationship to life. And in the same way, mm, as I was talking about this, um, this uh, climate change uh, topic that's coming up for the, the teachers, um, so much about our uh, place in this earth has to do with how we hold our purpose and our birthright or our role in relationship to the rest of the species, uh, all the different species in the earth, whether um, humans have uh, a given right to have dominion over all the life forms, or that we have been entrusted, that we, there's a trusteeship with our that comes along with our um, deeper um, capacities for understanding as well as for our capacities for destruction. And that if we see ourselves as trustees or as, as wise um, stewards of life on this planet, since we have been given this role and this capacity, how different it is from the story in our culture of this this realm being for our um, our personal disposal, a disposable realm. And so, what if all of these thousands of species die? You know, this is this is our place. How we hold it is so different. Same way that we hold about climate change. Some people hold, oh, it's a hoax. Some people hold, oh, it's too late and we're doomed. Some people hold, time is running out. Things will change. Things will definitely change. And there are still possibilities to make a difference. I, I'm um, working on this presentation to the, the teachers with uh, this fellow who's come here before I gave a series of talks on his book, this guy Bob Doppelt, who um, is a uh, long-time Dharma practitioner. I think I've mentioned him before here um, in recent times. He works with um, 18 different organizations, sustainability and climate change organizations, uh, in conjunction with um, with the um, administration, and goes back and forth to Washington, trying to um, help uh, create a new narrative for the for the public, and um, it's very inspiring work that that he does. And uh, two things in working with him that have particularly uh, moved me that I want to. Uh, have the teachers, or the other teachers here as well. One is that um, in a, a, in a um, conversation I had with him after Earth Day, the Earth Day event at Spirit Rock, and we were having dinner. Uh, he's an old friend. We, I've known him oh, about 25 years ago. He used to practice uh, in retreats I lit up at Brighton Bush. And uh, we've just reconnected in recent times. And I said, wow, you know, it's so, so amazing how here you are, these two strands of your life, the Dharma uh, and, um, and, and your work on the environment have come together and you're somehow bringing them together. And, you know, it must be, must be very uh, rewarding. And he said, um, it's more than rewarding. Um, the way I see it, the Dharma holds the key, holds the key to a shift in consciousness. 
if we're going to make it, it's going to be how much the teachings are communicated, transmitted to the culture. And he doesn't use jargon. He doesn't use Buddhist jargon. But he translates the teachings into very accessible ways. When he said, the Dharma holds the key. I said, wow. He said, of everything, it's just how you think about things, whether you're going to make a change. Then he said one other thing, and he said this uh, at, the, um, at the Earth Day event. He said, as, as dire as the situation is, um, he's optimistic that there are many possibilities that will come out of this. A shift in consciousness as there's never been before. Yes, there's going to be lots of dukkha. Yes, there's going to be, there's no getting around that. We're probably, we're we're too late to say, oh yeah, we, we hope nothing happens. But that there's a potential here and there is time for um, tremendous uh, possibilities. And his inspiring, still holding optimistic vision was contagious for me and saying, oh, okay, then it doesn't cut it to say, oh, what's the point? There's nothing to do. And just kind of go down, you know, gentle into that good night. Um, And I've been kind of re-inspired since being around him saying, okay, then it's, it's, it's my, our task to do what we can uh, to make a difference. Just the way that changes. Um, so this is not to eliminate the various stories that we hold. We're always going to have stories, but it's, as the Buddha said, just seeing the skillful use of story, whether it inspires you or whether it uh, discourages you, um, what story, what personal story about your own life, about practice, what story around the culture that you, um, that you think is so, what story about uh, the planet, about spiritual life, what story do you hold that, um, and what is it, its effect on you? Does it inspire you or does it make you um, despairing or um, uninspired or thinking that it's unattainable outside of our, uh, the realm of possibility for change? And I think uh, what, what I want to do to end my part of the, of the talk is to play for you a um, most inspiring vision around um, the story of the possibility of practice making a difference in the world. Mm. Um, and this is... How long is it? It is... It is six minutes. This is something that I've been playing a lot in the last year or so uh, by uh, Andrew Harvey. Perhaps you're familiar with Andrew Harvey. Very inspiring figure. Reading a poem by Rumi and then riffing on this poem in a way that um, has helped me change the story uh, in my own heart of what it means to uh, to bring practice into the world. So um, I hope this can play well through the uh, just through my computer and the and the mic. So sit back and just uh, relax and uh, let yourself be touched and take it in. Thank you.
trampled down every branch of exhaustion. Passion is the supreme elixir and renews all things. No one can grow exhausted when passion is born. Don't sigh heavily, your brow bleak with boredom. Look for passion, 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 passion. Futile solutions deceive the force of passion. They are bandits who extort money through lies. Marshy and stagnant waters, no cure for thirst. However limpid and delicious it might look, it'll only trap you and stop you looking for fresh rivers that could feed and make flourish a hundred gardens, just as each piece of false gold prevents you from recognizing real gold and where to find it. False gold will only cut your feet and bind your wings, saying, I will remove your difficulties, when in fact it is only dregs and defeat in the name of victory. Run, my friends. Run far away from all false solutions. Let divine passion triumph and rebirth you in yourself. I believe that the return of Rumi in our time is no coincidence. I think that this tremendous message of passionate, devoted love to the divine and to the creation is the message that all of us, whoever we are and whatever religion we belong to, need to hear desperately, need to be inspired by desperately, because I believe that the world now can only be saved by people who have allowed their hearts to be inflamed by this sacred passion for reality, so that out of this deep, sober, peaceful, wild, profound, sacred passion from reality, we can start to act in what I call sacred activism to transform the planet on every level. When the mystic's passion for God is united with the activist's passion for justice, then a third force is created, which is ignited within the human, released within the cells of the human, and made active within the human. And this is really the core force of sacred activism. So for me, Rumi is the supreme poet of this movement of love in action, and his return to the world's consciousness is a divine gift to us at this moment. A peaceful, illumined consciousness is not going to be enough. A loving, passionate consciousness without wisdom isn't going to be enough. But when peace and passion are married, when illumination and action are married, when prayer and profound activity born out of compassion are married, then what is born is the divine human in action. And it is this birth of the divine human that I believe is the great secret of the terrible and menacing and chaotic death that we are living through. In one of his greatest passages, Rumi says, when your heart is shattered open by heartbreak, what you find in the core of it is a fountain of deathless passion that never runs dry. And this poem is the poem of that deathless passion that never runs dry. And it's that deathless passion that never runs dry that I believe millions of people are now going to find in the middle of this heartbreak that we're going to be put through because the human race is now going through a dark night of the species that is a cosmic global equivalent of that shattering of the dark night that the mystic goes through to end the reign of the false self and begin the reign of the self-devoted in Ishk to the beloved, to the creation, to others. I have lived through a small part of this experience and as I live through its agony and horror and torment and ecstasy and revelation, it was this poem that accompanied me because it was this poem that held out to me the life beyond the death that I was undergoing. And I think the last two lines have a tremendous message to us at this moment. Run far away, my friends, from all false solutions. Let divine 
passion triumph and rebirth you in yourself. And to me that means let yourself at last face how absolutely and with what insane intensity you are loved by the Beloved. Let the shattering truth of that infinite love triumph over your ego, over your vanity, over your fears of abandonment, over your loneliness. Let that enormous, unconditional, crazy intensity of absolutely, compassionately, passionate love that is streaming from the Beloved at all moments, finally and forever, break upon you and irrigate your mind, illumine your heart and saturate the cells of your body so as to rebirth you in your true self, your divine human self, your divinized human self, your human self that has realized itself as an instrument of divine love in reality. Pretty cool, huh? <clears throat> Try playing that 50 or 100 times <clears throat> like I've done. It's a, it's a story that I've uh, been re-inspired by that the peace plus the caring makes a difference in this world and how contagious it is. I mean, that's what I got from him. I get a transmission, how contagious it is. And it makes me just want to share as well. So what story are you holding? What will serve you and what will serve all of us? It's a good thing to Explore. So we have a few minutes if there's um, any question, anything that comes up. We can take some time for discussion. Let's see. Patricia. Oh, thanks, Andrew. Part of me just wants to say, I just want to... Oops, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Hang on, hit the wrong. Yeah. Uh, part of me just wants to weep. Wants to weep. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's so many dimensions to... Um, To that kind of weeping, you know, it's positive and Mm -hmm. cleansing and um, sad and in touch with layers of my own mind that hold back that place, Mm -hmm. um, circumstances. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, being in touch with that joy and that abandon for letting that divine energy be recognized. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's all <laughs> I don't know if I'm making sense. Yeah, no, it's all it, <laughs> it's all part of it and it's all essential to let it all come through you. That's the I think that's the point. What you're if you're living in uh, in denial and thinking, oh everything is a okay, uh, that doesn't serve. And if you're so overwhelmed that you know, there you're just weeping. That that is limiting too. But you first have to get in touch with all the the places that we protect ourselves. Not first, but an important component is getting in touch with all the places of sadness and uh, and sorrow, and really acknowledge it all, but not let it define who you're who you are and what your heart is and what your capacities are. Um, so out of that, just like turning towards, turning towards sorrow or suffering in our practice is the way through. 
You know, so there you are with fear or confusion and you turn towards it. Oh yes, and this is, this is part of, um, part of this, this heart. How can I hold this with compassion? So that's an essential piece and then see that, not to stop there, but go be, in addition to, to integrate that sorrow and then come out with, with the joy and the caring and the love as well. Sometimes the weeping can be from recognizing beauty and truth and, um, you know, like seeing the Grand Canyon the first time. Sometimes you, oh. there's just no words, you, you know. Yeah, like either way, yeah. My, I, that kind of weeping I'm, I'm very familiar That's with. That's what I mean. Uh, I was just, uh, I was with my mom this, uh, uh, this last weekend down in L.A. And I've I, I mentioned to, to here before, she's, she's in the last stages of, of, of her life. And we're playing, um, uh, I've recorded a lot of old songs. So there I was, I was recording Perry Como. Uh, I downloaded Perry Como. I said, do you like Perry Como? I love Perry Como. <laughs> and there I was just hearing you know, catch a falling star, and round and round. And there I was, and I was, we were reading the biography, Wikipedia biography of Perry Como, and we were both crying. Exactly. Just, what a beautiful guy he was, and boo, how that can activate that in you. I think that kind of weeping is, uh, is, is sacred. Yeah. And then there's the other kind of weeping as well. Both are about letting the heart be touched and open. Yeah, that soft place, really soft. Tender, so that you're not protected and covered, but there, there's a, the armoring is down and, and life is touching you. Yeah. Then that, you're in touch with your aliveness out of that. Yeah. Anything else? One... This is one last one, uh, all the way in the back. Can you catch it? Well, I think for uh, me... Real close to your mouth. Yeah. Okay. That's um, it. That's great. good. I think for, for me, uh, a lot of what's hardest about living with this global warming uh, matter is that uh, uh, there seem, there's a lot of knowledge about it, and there's no collective... Or there, there's no a- action on the part of uh, our leaders and governments that seems to be addressing it. So <clears throat> there's this feeling of futility um, that I, I experienced, uh, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> it seems sort of that maybe the uh, part of the spiritual um, value or message can, can, can be how we can deal with that feeling of futility. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think you're saying, but but that's something that uh, is really hard to struggle with sometimes mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, well, it's kind of like what I was saying before, that feeling the futility and the despair, but that's a story, if you let your story stop there, then there's nowhere to go. And then, then it's just, you know, you're left with despair. That's one story from your from one vantage point it looks like nobody is paying attention. From another vantage point, the whole world is becoming much, much more aware in a very short space of time from 10 years ago and the, and the way that things are, are working now. It's, uh, it's all how you see it, that there is so much more consciousness about things now than there was before, uh, you can't turn the ship on a dime, but as more and more people wake up and care, uh, things change. Look at, I gave a couple of talks on this uh, recently, look how things have changed around gay marriage in the last, what, five years you know that's that there was or ten ten years ago you know the the presidential campaigns were torpedoed by social values family values, and now you know well that's that's at least the the common uh the common consensual psyche, oh yeah, well, that's pretty much 
done um, for the most part. Look how fast things change. So if you see on this slice of reality, oh, it's futile. It's a very, very limited picture. So you have to, equanimity is about getting a bigger a bigger view, a bigger perspective, and seeing that things change in their own time, in their own way, as more and more people shift their consciousness. And there's a, a famous uh, study, I think Stanford did it, did it, that all that's needed for the collective psyche to change is 7% of the population. That you don't have to convince... of the population, then it starts to be a trend and and shifting that filters up to uh, powers that that be. So I would say, yeah, honor honor those thoughts, but don't believe them that they're the only story. Okay, so uh, let's have a short loving kindness. You might this week just notice the different stories you tell yourself about who you are, about what your life is, about what spiritual practice is, about where the culture is heading, where the planet is heading, and see if you can uh, choose stories that inspire you to keep heading in the right direction and touching others while honoring all the the sorrows and confusions held in gratitude and awe. So, just feeling your own goodness of heart and sending yourself some kind thoughts. May I wake up to the highest truth and share my love well. And may our collective caring touch each other and all beings to wake those qualities of caring and wisdom. May all benefit from our coming here together and may all find the highest peace and happiness. Thank you very much. Come back next week. Greg Kramer is going to be here with us too. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.